Smartcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. All right, listeners, hello and welcome to this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. I've got a great guest lined up for you today, Mr. Neil Sahota. Neil, thanks for being with us. Hey, Earl, I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. I am excited and, and blessed to have you on the show because I, I love... What we're getting ready to talk about here, I think it's a great topic. I think it's uh, an important one for uh, just the future of society, if I'm being honest here. Uh, but what I want listeners to know before we get into that is your background a little bit here. So listeners, Neil is an IBM master inventor, United Nations AI advisor, chief innovation officer, and globally recognized speaker and author. He is a founding member of the UN's AI for Good initiative. And he's going to talk with us about how we can disrupt the box, which I think is a great topic. And through his work with global Fortune 500 companies as a change maker, he has created a disruptive thinking framework called, uh, I'm going to call it Tuckbo. You can tell me if that's right or wrong later, but I, li- I like the idea of calling it Tuckbo, T-U-C-B-O, uh, to show people this is how you can think differently. So, Neil. Uh, with all of your experience, uh, your your global experience, which is uh, a thing that uh, I like uh, you bring into the table with this conversation here, when you hear the phrase responsible leadership, what does that look like to you? That's a, a great question, Earl. I think being a responsible leader is it's not just having the, the vision and getting people to execute on it. I think there's a obligation to do what's right to help develop people as well as see what we can do for social impact. And I know that a lot of people say, okay, that sounds like a lot. It probably is. But I really think that's the what responsible leadership is. We we live in an interesting time. And if nothing else, I think a lot of leaders and managers have learned during the uh, the pandemic, it's not enough to manage the performance of our employees, but to also take care and help with their well-being. And that really extends out to, you know, society and the planet in general. So it's trying to find that synergy among the the three, you know, so the triple constraint, triple, triple bottom line, people, planet, profit. 
Yeah. No, I like that. I like that a lot. That that is uh that might be right up there with some of my uh my favorite answers there because you know it is. I mean, we we like to think about a lot of these topics uh kind of locally or maybe within our own organization and and sometimes uh we can really miss the interconnectivity of of the world now. You know, I I always tell folks like when we use the 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 term you can change the world at no other time in history have we meant that literally than right now because so many people right now that would never have an opportunity to really influence the world around them can make huge impacts in modern society today, right? 100% agree, Earl. And it's it's an interesting kind of twist here because never has so much like opportunity power been in each person's hand to to be that change maker, to, to bring the innovation disruption, you know, to, to shape the future. Yet, I think at the same time, a lot of people don't realize they can actually do that. And I, I think that's where the, the struggle is, because historically, you know, we've never really seen that. We've never had that kind of, you know, influence and opportunity. And well, let's be honest, we, we look at the great things and it's like, well, you got to be like an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos or something to be that kind of disruptive force. And I don't really think that's true. And I think, you know, again, as, as a responsible leader, that's one of the responsibilities we should be taking on to empower our people to be that disruptor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think those are two great examples, right? I mean, cause when you look where they are now, uh, yeah, it looks all like sunshine and roses, but you know, they are two individuals who, who came from, relatively, especially to where they are now, relatively humble beginnings, but look at the impact that those two individuals have had uh, on the globe. I mean, between those two guys that you named right there, there's probably nobody on the face of the planet whose life hasn't been changed in some way, shape or form by those two guys. And that's a lot of, in my opinion, thinks a lot to the, the technology that we have at our fingertips right now. It is, and I don't want to give people the idea like, oh my God, you have to do something global like that to to be a disruptor. Not at all. There are things you can do for your company, for your community, but it, that's the power we have with all these emerging technologies with you know AI, the metaverse, IoT. It's just we have this rapidly expanding toolbox, these new capabilities, and we're always thinking like, well, someone else will show me what we can do for, you know, my industry or my community. And it's like, there's, yeah, there's a lot of smart technologists, but they probably don't know the pain points you feel in your, your work or in your life. So it's really hard for them to know. And it's like the, we're living in this, you know, fourth industrial revolution. It's a whole new way of working is what's really happening. It has to be this partnership between the business folks or the domain experts, understanding the, the capabilities of these tools, not, not how you build them or the technology behind them, but understand the capabilities so they can work with technologists to actually create solutions. But, well, Earl, you know, to do that, you got to start with, okay, what's the problem I'm tackling? And then what's a different type of idea that I can actually make a reality? Yeah. No, that that's that's that last piece is... Uh, you know, the the questions that everybody should be asking. But uh, before we kind of get a little bit further down there, I'm, I'm really kind of curious. So, you know, looking at your 
uh, background and, and the stuff I've uh, mentioned already. And uh, the title of your book is Own the AI Revolution. What what got Neil Zahoda interested in AI? Like, what was the genesis uh, for, for your AI love? <laughs> it's uh, most like most things in my life, random circumstance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know I'm dating myself here, but, you know, back in like 2003, 2004, business intelligence was really taking off. You know, we, we suddenly had all these technological tools to collect large amounts of data. We could store it cheaply. You know, people using like, you know, SQL and stuff could slice and dice it and make nice looking reports. You know, and I, I remember working with, you know, some very big companies like, you know, Disney, Berkshire, all those guys. And, you know, I heard even from guys like, you know, Michael Eisner and all that, it's, hey, Neil, it's it's amazing what computers are telling us. You know, I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, the computer actually isn't telling us anything. <laughs> you know, we it's helping us, you know, collect and, you know, helping us, you know, sort through lots of data. But at the end of the day, it's still us as humans trying to figure out sense from this. But I started thinking, like, but could a computer look at data like a human being and could it draw insight from it? And that's what set me down this path. And so I started developing some, you know, intellectual property to start developing patents on what I call enterprise intelligence. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, that long story short, that would eventually morph into what we call machine learning. And my, my work got the attention of some folks at IBM R&D talking, they said, like, you're solving some problems that we're working on. Do you want to join us on a secret project codenamed Watson? Yeah. And so I want to becoming part of the original IBM Watson team. And, well, long story short, Earl, one of the progenitors of this AI wave we're now in. Yeah. And, you know, the stuff that's going on with, with Watson right now, like, even on the outside looking in, I'm sure there's a lot of super secret squirrel stuff going on that, that uh, you know, if you told us about it, you'd have to kill us. But um you know, that is some amazing uh, computing technology, you know, just like reading up some of the stuff that that it has been used uh, in the medical industry, for instance, with being able to speed up the uh, uh, speed up the not only speed up, but speed up and improve the efficacy of medical diagnosis. Uh, man, that is again, that's world changing work right there. So, uh, you know, thank you for kind of being a part of that and, and getting that uh that revolution started. <laughs> I, I appreciate that, Earl. And you, you're keeping me honest because I always think about the things we have yet to do. I, I do forget to look backwards sometimes. That's not being a good, responsible leader on my part to celebrate success. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, but that's the thing, right? Is, is you know, it, this, this uh, technology, and again, I, I love talking about the interconnectivity of the world because it's very hard to do anything that doesn't have this, you know, the, the, the whole butterfly effect, right? I think that is, again, more real now than it has ever been at any time in history. And uh, so, yeah, man, I mean, take some time, pat yourself on the back there, because <laughs> who knows where this is going to go? Like Watson, I think, is one of the, the greatest. I know some people get scared, and, and, and this is a good question to ask, right? Some people get scared when they start looking at what AI can do. Not just is it going to replace my job, but, uh, you know, we see all the science fiction movies about AI becoming sentient and taking over the world and firing nukes and all that kind of good stuff, right? 
how do you get people to be able to appreciate what AI can do uh, and kind of separate out some of that uh, anxiety from what it could possibly do? It's a really, really good question. And it's, it's, a, it's a combination of different things to make that transition. And I'll be upfront, not, not everyone is going to accept that. It, part of this is a generational type of change. But I'll tell you, you know, when we were working on Watson, we were, we were getting death threats. And even during the Jeopardy Challenge, there were people protesting saying, we, hey, you created Skynet. Right. And the honest truth is, is I know that most people are not comfortable with change. And this is a massive change. And all we can do is, you know, try and highlight the need for the change with the value it creates for different people. This, this whole AI wave is not to replace humans from their jobs. It's not to create a superior, you know, quote unquote, being or race, whatever you want to consider it. It's really a tool set, you know, to augment our own abilities. And so like we were talking about healthcare, you know, that was the first industry we took, you know, Watson into. And that's one of the prevalent places because there's lots of issues in healthcare. You know, it's just, Massive amounts of data, you know, doctors report that, you know, they, they have less than five hours a week just to read the latest medical journals, you know, new, new viruses, diseases popping up all the time. And when we went in there, we, we were thinking like, we know the doctors and nurses are probably going to be freaked out that AI is going to replace them. You have an AI doctor, AI nurse, that kind of stuff. And so we went in really showcasing that this is a tool set to help you do your job. Right, you you have still the final decision. It's just here to help you process all this information, and take some of the admin work off your shoulders. Right, so you can spend more time with patients, more time on complex uh, cases. That only worked to a degree, because while highlighting the value can placate some of the automation fears, one of the things we actually went up quickly realizing was a lot of the health practitioners were actually more concerned that the AI would shine a light on all the mistakes they actually made. Hmm. Because, you know, I think even as of five, six years ago, uh, you have a 20% chance of actually being misdiagnosed in the United States. Yeah. Right? Doctors, you know, I don't fault doctors. I mean, they're trying to see so many patients or so many other external pressures and all this stuff that it's, it's inevitable, right? We're going to make mistakes. And, there was a real concern, Earl, that they're like, man, the, the AI is going to be like near perfect and it's going to call out all my mistakes, right? It's going to diminish my place in the world and in the universe. That was actually the bigger challenge to contend with. And so, again, we had to find different value propositions, other things to say, like, this is not to call out your mistakes. It's just, it's another, it's another tool, like a stethoscope to help you make fewer mistakes. So yeah. there's a lot of like messaging and highlighting and the values and other things that actually have to take this. And there's a lot of education that has to occur to help people understand and be, what they'll actually get out of this. What's the WIFM, as I say, what's in it for me by using the technology? Yeah. Well, and I think that is a, a critical piece, right, is is even with uh, machine learning, you know, the 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 machine uh, learning from itself and even get, you know, using the term self-aware, even with that, like at the root of it, AI uh, begins with code 
And the quality of that code, the quality of that data uh, really depends on the, the self-awareness of the coder um, and the, the amount of time and effort they put into it. And like using the medical field as an example, right? I mean, Watson's not going to learn anything about the medical field that a doctor hasn't discovered and put out there in a database somewhere. It just really, uh, I think it really just makes that job more efficient, right? And, that, and that's really what it is. You know, it was, it, I think, 2014, 2015, there was a, a woman in Japan who fell ill, saw her doctor for like 20 years, tried some things, didn't work, started seeing some specialists, you know, running tests. Long story short, seven months later, they, they didn't know what was going on. And they tried a bunch of different things. And so one of the doctors said, hey, could Watson help us? So they went in, Watson looked at all the great work the doctors did, all the tests, looked at her family history, actually studied her genomics, asked a couple of, Watson asked a couple of questions, and then said, hey, um, I think she has these two rare forms of leukemia. And the doctors are like, well, psh, that, that can't be right, right? That, that's pretty much impossible for that to happen. And said, okay, look, it's, maybe it's not working. Maybe it you know, didn't get it right. But can we at least, you know, it's explained its logic. Watson explained our logic to us. Can we at least test for those two forms of leukemia? And they did. And she tested positive for both of them. Mm. So something that was like a one in a trillion chance just happened to happen. So it was discounted for, for that reason. But now that they knew, they could put her on a, on a proper training. But you know, a lot of people ask, like, well, how did Watson arrive at this conclusion? And it's like, well, it, it took all the work the doctors did. But you know, Watson had read like 20 million, you know, clinical trial studies and, you know, 100 million medical studies. And it has an eidetic memory. It remembers all these things. It can read and process, you know, an amount of information. That's the power of AI. Read all this data, understand it, find patterns that no human can really do. There's no human can read 20 million clinical trial studies in their lifetime. So that's that's the power of these tools. Yeah. Well, and I think the other thing is, and this is one where, you know, as, as responsible leaders, uh, we have to be aware of the power of ego, right? And, and AI, we're talking about Watson quite a bit here because of your ties to it, but AI in general doesn't really have an ego to contend with, whereas as we do, right? I mean, uh, using your example, a lot of times, you know, the, the idea is, well, you know, I've done these tests, I've done that test, this is statistically impossible this can't be it because our ego wants to help us think that we know that it can't be it whereas ai doesn't have that limitation does it it, it doesn't and that's a really good point you can't hurt ai's feelings but that's also interestingly enough one of the powers we get from ai and that it actually can perceive things differently your example with the blinders is spot on and in the ultimate of ironies it's a limiting factor for us there, there are things where I've seen organizations say like, well, we can never use AI for this. So this is, you know, regardless of technology, impossible to do. And it's like, because we just, it's never happened or we think it's not. And that's really not the case. Like, you know, I'll, I'll shift from health to, to law just for some diversity here. But, you know, I remember one of the biggest law firms coming in, they were talking about how they could use AI and some of their technologies and 
it was a lot of like, you know, automation type of stuff. And there's value in that, Earl, don't get me wrong, but you're like kind of scratching the surface on what you could really do. And so, you know, one of the, the managing partners looking at me is like, that's kind of what we thought. I mean, it didn't seem like there's really anything special here. So what, what can we, what, what, what is a, a disruptive idea? And I said, let's figure it out. So I asked him, what keeps you awake at night? You know, what's your biggest problem? And he's like, actually, it's talent management. Mm-hmm. We, we just go to the top 10 law schools. We look at the top 10% of the class. We hire and hope for the best. We don't know if that's going to be a great trial lawyer, rainmaker, whatever. You know, we've drawn people out that we thought were terrible. And now they're superstars in the courtroom beating us, working, for, you know. He's like, can AI help us with that? And it's actually, yes. You know, we can actually look at that. So, you know, developed an AI system that actually understood the skills and the culture of the firm, understood, you know, how to kind of assess people and help them actually figure out what type of law or area they actually excel in. And a year after using it, they saw their retention rate was way up. Productivity was way up. People felt like they had a more defined career path. And, you know, when I tell people that story, they're like, how in the world could AI do something like that? that's not possible? How could it like know a person and their what's best for their career? And it's that kind of blinder that limits our ability to actually innovate and find new ways of, you know, doing our work or, or helping people or helping the planet. Yeah, no, that is great. That is great. And I think that's a, a great spot here uh, to take a quick break and uh, pay some bills, as they say, and, and hear a quick message from our sponsors for the show. So I'm going to take a quick break and uh, we'll be right back here in just a few short minutes. All right, folks, welcome back to this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. We are with Neil Sohoda, and uh, we've been talking about AI and, and everything that AI can do and the role that Neil has played in it. Uh, we haven't referenced it directly, but a lot of the stuff that we've talked about is contained in Neil's book, Own the AI Revolution, Unlock Your Artificial Intelligence Strategy to Disruption. Um, and you left us with some interesting insight um, as to a law firm uh, using AI to for, for talent management. Um, how and you left with kind of a rhetorical question there, like how can AI do this, right? Um, I think that is a really good question because I'm a big fan of of. Uh, James Sirwicky, when he talks about wisdom of the crowds, right? And I, I understand the idea that more input, um, you know, can kind of help us smooth out some of our biases and come up with a, a better answer. But, you know, your, your question there was a really good one because uh, I, I, I want HR folks, I get a lot of HR folks on here to kind of understand how can AI help with a hiring decision? So great question, Earl. Some stuff I worked on, and actually there's a reference, a little story in my book about this. If you think about it, like let's let's talk about like recruiting and hiring somebody. We're really looking for two things. Are they qualified? And are they going to be a good fit for like the corporate culture and the team? Qualifications, we can 
you know, ask the questions, have them pick a test, you know, do all these things because it's a bit more of a hard skill set. Trough spot is really around are they a, a fit for the company and the team or not? Because let's be honest, none of us act like our normal self during an interview, right? If someone says like, hey, well, you know, uh, sometimes you might have to work 60 hours a week. Are you cool with that? Oh, no, I totally love that, man. I, I want to work 80 hours, right? It's, right. it's tough to assess. And I know a lot of people that they've hired people that on paper, they look good. They said the right things in the interview. They were definitely very skilled, but personality-wise, work style-wise, not a good fit. And that's actually one area where AI excels because we've actually been able to teach AI psychology and it actually has the ability to do psychographic profiling. So just from like a resume, a LinkedIn profile, you don't need that much data, right? Words are tough to disguise. It's kind of like a fingerprint into ourselves that the AI can actually map a candidate out across the 56 personality traits and draw levels around their, their commitment and their work style. And you can match that up because you can do the same analysis on that specific team, the corporate culture in general, and see, is there enough of a mesh going on that this will work? And it's been, I'll call it six, quite successful, that I've seen companies now that are leveraging AI for this, inverting their recruiting process. Where it was is, you know, you put the post in, People submit their resumes, you do the keyword search, you start looking at the applicants and seeing, okay, who's got the right skills, and then you know, figure out the rest later. That now when the resumes come in, they're actually looking at that fit first. The AI is actually examining the fit and saying, like, whatever the threshold is, we want people at least an 80% fit. Then they start scanning the keywords and all that kind of stuff. So you get a thousand people for a job rec suddenly that first step may knock it down to 17 people. So it's kind of streamlined and simplified the process. And at least the preliminary data we've seen by doing this shows that at least from that fit perspective, it's worked out much, much better. Yeah. And, and that is a piece that I really like because I think we're starting to see, um, and, and this is, I think, one of the silver linings from the pandemic uh, we're starting to see a lot of hiring shift more towards fit because they're able to pull from a larger talent pool globally now versus who is willing to move to Silicon Valley, who's willing to move to New York, who's willing to move to uh, Seattle, uh, you know, kind of the big tech hubs there. Um, and, and that fit piece is becoming a lot more significant. I mean, I remember reading some uh, stuff that, that Google has done on their hiring process that, you know, talks about uh, them not even really looking at GPAs or even degrees anymore, but really focusing on these quote unquote soft skills, the fit, how adaptable, how dependable, things like that. Um, so that's, that's incredible because uh, I think that really is the key to, to most hiring decisions. Cause if you don't if you don't hire somebody who's going to fit with your culture, who's going to fit with your team, it doesn't matter how well qualified they are. If they're going to come in and be disruptive in the negative sense of the term disruption, uh, that's that's not a good hire. And if AI can help you do that, why not? Right. A hundred percent. And I tell you, know, I tell a lot of people like, look, if you just look at sports in general, right, the team sports, 
you can't build a team with just a bunch of superstars or the best of the best players because they, they probably have some overlapping skills and it over over emphasizes the strengths and over emphasizes the common weaknesses, right? It's all about complementary. I was here about complementary role players and stuff. It's the exact mm-hmm. same thing in the workplace. We need those complementary role players. We need the people with the different thoughts and diversity of perspectives to really achieve true innovation. Yeah. No, and and uh, to your point, I remember um, reading Tony Dungy's first book. The name of it just popped out of my head. But living outside of Indianapolis for a few years now, I uh, would not consider myself a Colts fan necessarily, but I grew up in Tennessee, so I love Peyton Manning and I love Tony Dungy. Um, but, you know, he said in the book, you know, the, the team, the Colts team that won the Super Bowl, he said something like uh, that wasn't, he said that wasn't our most, talented team it probably didn't even rank in the top five maybe not even the top 10 but it was the team that worked the best as a team and that was a difference from going 13 and 3 to winning a super bowl um and you know you had really good results 13 and 3 is an outstanding season but the being a team got them a super bowl ring and so uh, again hr folks i think uh you know what neil's laid out here and, and he talks about in the book uh, the, the power of AI can help you build that, that team uh, a lot better, which, again, is a great example of, of making sure that people realize AI doesn't have to be scary Skynet. It can be very helpful, very dependable, and make our lives uh, a lot easier. And, and kind of uh, to that vein, uh, talk to us a little bit. We, we mentioned it earlier, but this UN's AI for Good initiative, what is that all about? Well, this really started out because the UN was worried about that Skynet moment. And so yeah. back in 2015, I was asked to address the, the world leaders and the UN ambassadors. And I was warned. They thought the robots are coming to take over. <laughs> I gave a little more optimistic speech, but I actually really didn't just talk about AI, I really emphasized how it was already being used for public services and how it could be used towards the sustainable development goals, which are 17 goals the member nations have agreed to for a better world. So things like zero hunger, good health, access to justice. I, I won't bore you with all 17. You can Google it. Right. But you know, my speech was really well received, and you know, afterwards at the reception, I was approached by the Secretary General and a couple other world leaders, and they said, you know, we actually never thought about using AI. We were worried about the the impacts and the you know the scary AI stuff and how we regulate it. We actually never thought about using it, and there's a lot of momentum right now. We want to figure something out. Will you help us? And so you know, I, I met with the Secretary General the following week, and. Again, long story short, uh, we realized that, you know, there's a huge gap in trying to make the SDGs a reality, but AI and other emerging technologies can help bridge some of that gap. And so the goal of AI for Good is to actually focus on solutions. So, you know, volunteer, people volunteer their time, resources, UN commits things to actually create services to make the SDGs a reality. So, you know, we've done work like in Africa to improve, you know, access to good health care. We've done work in like Bangladesh and, uh, you know, Malawi to help, you know, impoverished farmers be able to grow more food. So, 
in the span, I think we've we've probably completed over 200 projects. And I mean, today we have 117 projects, just all focused on the SDGs, having more AI tools at their disposal. Mm. Yeah, no, that is, that is good. I mean, again, going back to all we talked about in the first segment there with everything Watson can do, it's a lot easier, especially in some of those countries. And, and I know some of my folks being uh, veterans, you know, really get kind of the geopolitical discourse that goes on in some of those areas. But, you know, I got a lot of listeners that that probably really don't understand how dangerous it is for a doctor to volunteer to go into some of these places, especially a uh, uh, a white doctor, whether they're American, European, uh, with a colonial and, and colonizing uh, background. They're not usually terribly well received by everyone in the area. Uh, they expose themselves to a high level of risk to go in and do the work that they do. And, and if AI can come in and help and, and, and mitigate that, I mean, that is, that is just amazing work to be able to, to help these folks that so desperately need uh, that type of help, be able to get it without exposing uh, all of that personnel to all of the risks that come with that area. So that is, uh, that is a noble purpose if I've ever heard one there, Neil, appreciate you for doing that. No, I, 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 I appreciate that, Earl. It's, it's probably the most rewarding work I've ever done. And, you know, it's, it, it's, it's at a mind blowing level because, you know, the UN was reported out a couple of weeks ago that since we've launched this, about 980 million people around the world have benefited from this initiative. That's yeah. just a staggering number. That is, yeah, that is, that is an amazing number. And, and, uh, you know, looking at, uh, you know, again, I love to brag about our friends over at Interview Valet because I love what Tom and his folks do. Uh, but, you know, in the one sheet, they mentioned another one of the projects that you're working on there uh, is the Zero Abuse Project to Prevent Child Sexual Abuse. Um, that that one is very interesting to me to kind of figure out how AI plays a role in this. So can you talk about that a little bit and and what is that project all about? Yeah, so it's a nonprofit that is kind of is geared towards helping the survivors of childhood sexual abuse and trying to find ways to reduce reduce it, particularly the ones where um, the bad actors are protected by institutions. And so they they actually you know they heard about my work. I was at an event. They approached me asking like, "Are there some things that we can do?" And I'm said, yeah, there probably is. So we, we met and talked about it. So, we, you know, obviously we start talking about like, what can we do to help some of the survivors? And it's a very traumatic experience. And a lot of people don't fully understand what happened to their adults. But as we were talking through it, you know, I'm, I'm very big about thinking differently. And this is where you very properly said tuckboat, that's how I call it, comes into play because it's kind of disruptive framework because, you know, we're thinking about, okay, do we create some chatbots? Can we you know, automate some of the program with AI to help give people more access to resources or help more people volume-wise? But it was also one of those things like, well, if there was one thing you could really do differently, what would it be? And they're like, well, we want to be able to reduce the amount of victims, right? Is there a, a way to figure out who might be a target, who might be a bad actor? And it actually turns out that there are. There are some indicator flags on, a child that a potential victim or and somebody that might be a potential bad actor. And it's again, one of those things where it's a lot of data to process very quickly, but that's something that AI actually excels at. 
And so we actually built a platform to actually do that assessment and understand who that might be. And more particularly, is there a history of, I'll call it corruption in some of these institutions, that they actually know who the bad actors are, but they're protecting them. We're not you know, putting them out there. So if we could catch that, could we stop these bad actors from harming more children? Mm-hmm. So that's where that work really focuses on. There's, there's six pillars. I, I, won't, I won't bore everyone with all those things, but if you're interested, I do encourage you to check out the Zero Abuse Project website. And of course, you know, any, any help, any stories, all that is always greatly appreciated because, you know, I, I'm, I'm lucky enough and my kids are lucky enough that never, nothing ever happened, but one out of six children actually are, suffer some level of childhood sexual abuse. So that, that number is just ridiculously way too high. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it, it reminds me of, uh, yeah, I've got some friends uh, who are uh, involved in, in education um, in university uh, systems. I got a, a good friend. She was a guest early on in the show that is actually the the chief of police for uh, Indiana University Bloomington, the the kind of flagship campus. And you know the the college rape crisis was uh, you know big on on her mind. And they turned to some uh, some solutions to try to help. And one of them was uh, uh, kind of one of the innovators when it came to focusing on on college uh, campus rape was. Uh, Project Callisto, um, and uh, they were talking about a lot of statistics, uh, kind of some that you had mentioned there. But um, you know, talking about how the the one thing that keeps most victims uh, from coming forward is the feeling of of being alone, uh, being the only victim, and nobody believing them, and and using technology to be able to in some way uh, connect victims. So they know, hey, uh, you're not the only person who's went through this. There's uh, safety and numbers to be able to deal with those bad actors. So uh, I'm a big fan of using technology for stuff like that. And I think that's a great project. And uh, in the show notes, I want to make sure uh, that we get all of the links to all these projects here because you're doing some valuable work that I think a lot of my listeners uh, will definitely be interested in, in checking out and seeing how they can contribute. So um but you brought it up there and, and being a military guy, I love a good acronym. So before we get out of here, uh, let's, let's talk about Tuckbo. What is, what does Tuckbo stand for? Well, it stands for the, the five phases, which are think different, which is the ideation, understand different, which is actually vetting your idea and see that there's real value out of it. Create different, which is then actually the design and build of whatever product service. Be different, which is actually then driving the, the market and customer adoption and own different because ensuring you have the infrastructure to drive that adoption and to actually make it successful. So, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough, Earl, to probably do 20 once in a lifetime type of projects, opportunities. And, you know, people always ask, how, how on earth did you think of this? How'd you do that? Right. And it's it's just something I've been using throughout my own career. And I just kind of quantified into a framework because everyone always says, well, to, to do this, you got to think differently. And it's like, great. How the heck do I do that? <laughs> so I actually quantify it and actually share it. So companies actually use this to find the disruption or anticipate the disruption in their own industries. And I've actually seen people use it for their own careers to figure out their, their next step in their career path. 
So it works on all kinds of grand scales, but it's this soup to nuts thing because everyone thinks it's just the idea. No, I, I believe everyone has a billion dollar idea, but does that you check does it actually have value? How are you actually going to do this? How are you making sure you're, you're not just automating, but you're actually finding a different way to do the work or do the process or build the product or whatever it might be? And it's the last two, be different and own different that most people always skip because I think once I have the product and I push it out there, the rest happens now, right? There's there's plenty of products out there that are successful today that weren't the best actual product. It has to be more about how you, you be different and the messaging and the adoption. And, you know, I, I know I'm kind of rambling here a bit, a bit and I apologize, but, you know, I, I you know we talked about Elon in the beginning, so maybe I'm going to come full circle on this. Tesla wasn't the first electric vehicle. There were lots right. of different ones out there. Why was Tesla successful where they weren't? It wasn't because they revolutionized battery technology. They, they didn't. They made some incremental improvements that were helpful. Yeah, they had stylish cars. But they did the, the one thing every successful company does. They owned different. They built the infrastructure. Because if you think about why did people, what were people worried about? What was the reason to say no to electric vehicle? Worried about running out of juice. Right. Yep. And so what did Tesla do? They went out and built the charger infrastructure. They went out and negotiated the spots. They built an app so you can always find a, you know, a charging station where it was their own or somebody else's. They took away that reason to say no. And that's yeah. one of the most powerful things when it comes to disruption is you just can't have the idea and showcase the value. You got to build the infrastructure that can actually be successful. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and that is that is extremely valuable. And and that's what, you know, again, uh, you talk about successful organizations. That's what when you really go back and look at history. And I know that, you know, history doesn't view them uh, kind for the way that they treated their employees back in the day. But when you look at the the old railroad barons and the steel barons and the oil barons, it's exactly what they did. Right. They, they owned every piece of that infrastructure from pulling out of the ground to refining it, to putting it on the rails, to getting it to people. And and I agree with you. And, and you know, I know, you know, we can talk about Elon's eccentricities uh, <laughs> and fill up a whole other episode on that. But when you look at the things that the guy's doing, like this Hyperloop thing that everybody loves to give him grief about. Yeah, it may not be working the best right now. Um, but what invention worked perfectly the very first time? Like very, very few. I can't think of any, but I'm, I'm sure there's some that worked perfectly the, uh, for, from diagram to first build. But we're going to be looking back when Hyperloops are just the, the normal everyday business and probably forget that Elon even had the idea. And I think that's part of being an innovator, right? Is you got to be willing to to take those hits on the on the chin and adapt and and rebuild and re reinvent and think differently. Go through Tuckbow a couple of uh, uh, a couple of times, right? That's that's what we got to do, and that's why my framework. There's there's certain techniques and methods you use to help channel that and hopefully reduce some of those iterations, but. That's you're, you're touching upon something really important, which is we all have this level of fear of failure. And I know everyone says like, well, you shouldn't be afraid to fail. It's a great way to learn. But what we say and what we practice are different. This goes back to the whole culture thing that you really have to create this kind of entrepreneurial or entrepreneurial environment where people are have a little bit of freedom to experiment. And ironically, that's exactly what AI is. It's 
it's kind of it's a bit of experimentation to figure out what you can do and teach a machine. And that's the shift we're going through in this fourth industrial revolution, that if we're not willing to take that level of risk, this isn't just about, okay, well, I'll never be an innovator or disruptor, but I don't have to be. It's like, if you're not willing to take that risk, you're probably not going to have a job. That's the honest truth of it. That's that's what companies are starting to look for. They want those creative thinkers. They want those people that are willing to step out of the comfort zone and unlock that value. Yeah. Well, and and um, yeah, and we're we're getting a little bit long on time here, but I got to ask because I remember listening to one of your other interviews, and and something you just said there really really uh, hit my brain. You were talking with uh, a gentleman. And you mentioned that that now you're able to build uh, essentially models of of a business in the metaverse and put it through some of these iterations to see how it's it's going to react and make the adjustments make adjustments before doing it in real time. Did I, did I understand that right? That is, that is spot on using the metaverse and AI, right? I. I like to use the Doctor Strange analogy. So if people yeah. have seen the movies, they go into the mirror verse to practice their magic, right? Because whatever happens yeah. in there doesn't impact the real world. That's the power of the metaverse. You can create a complete replica of your office, your mind, your farm, your, your airport, whatever it might be. And if you're thinking about you know, experimenting, it's the perfect place. Because as you do things, you don't just see the immediate impact like on your customers or your sales, but you see the impact in your supply chain or other areas you may not have thought of and you can keep adjusting and trying. And it's allowed people to take a lot more risk and come up with a lot more creative solutions, a lot more value-added solutions as a result. Because we take away that fear of, well, if I screw up, I might torpedo my company. I love that. I love that. Well, Neil, we're coming up on about 45 minutes here. And uh, again, I feel like there's probably about at least 40 or 50 episodes here that, that we could pull out of this. But um, I, I do want to you know, take a quick second here and, and just kind of repitch because I, I really do believe that this is a valuable book uh, that every business should have, no matter what size, because I think there's an AI application out there that's accessible to you that you can use to help uh, your organization in some way. So go out and grab a copy of Own the AI Revolution. Unlock your artificial intelligence strategy to disrupt your competition. Um, and before we do get out of here, I'm really kind of curious. I know we covered a lot of ground here and there's just so much territory to cover with this topic, but is there anything that we really didn't get a chance to touch on that you want to leave listeners with before we close out? I'll just leave with one kind of Parting thought for everybody. I, I know we're living in a time of really rapid change. And, you know, we're, a lot of us are looking to other people to see, you know, what, what can we do or show us the light. But the truth is, is we each have the power to shape that future. That, that's how it's, it's actually broken down now. We, we had that cusp to influence, even to a small degree. And I encourage everyone to take that opportunity. You know, Earl did a fantastic job promoting my book and showing you I can do that things like my framework Tuckbo out there, but I really encourage each person to think about what they might do for their company, their family, their community, something like that, even if it's small, to shape that future. Don't don't be the passenger, be a driver. Mm. 
I love that. Don't be a passenger. Be the driver. That That's good advice right there. Uh, so, Neil, folks want to find out more about you, uh, you know, all the free time you have with how little you're doing. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they want to find out about your services, maybe get on board with some of these initiatives that you're, you're, uh, you're kind of kicking off here. Uh, what is a good place for them to find out more about Neil and those services? I definitely encourage you to, everyone to come to my website. It's just my name, neilsuhada.com. So if you're interested in learning more about my work or you want to bounce something off me or you want my help with Tuckboard or something, please, please reach out. I'm also sharing latest stuff going on in different industries and transformation leadership uh, in my newsletter off my website, as well as I post frequently on LinkedIn, as well as Twitter and Instagram. So feel free to connect with me on social media. Outstanding. And, and listeners, as always, uh, we'll have those links in the show notes. So they're just a click away. Uh, Neil, this has been, again, a fantastic conversation uh, I feel blessed to have had it with you and, and uh, be able to expose my listeners uh, that may have not heard of you before uh, to the world of Neil Sahota and the book Own the AI Revolution. Uh, I'm sure they're going to have a lot of questions and, and, and a lot of thoughts on AI and, and some of these other world issues, global issues that we've talked about here. So I just want to say again, thank you for being a guest on the Responsible Leadership Podcast and bringing all the information and knowledge that you have. Uh, Earl, I had a blast, man. Thanks for having me on. And I hope this was useful for everybody. I'm looking forward to hearing from your listeners. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid.